following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. out uh, around, there are many of you who have some experience or background in teaching. Many of you have taught in schools or, or uh, taught in perhaps Sunday school here at church or, or maybe taught in vacation Bible school or barring all of that are teachers at home of children and, and grandchildren. And if, if there's anything that has been uh, emphasized to me as a teacher, it is the, the power of analogy, of story. And if you have taught in any context, I'm sure that you have seen the same to be true. I know as a former teacher, the power of stories, I have a number of times had students come up to me and remind me of a story that I had told four or five years previously, and and the story sticks in their minds. Well, Paul is a good teacher. And as we come to the end of chapter 3, Paul is going to give us some stories, some analogies, some examples to say, Here's the point we have been making. Here's what it looks like to play out this, this principle of, of law and, and faith to justification. Here's what this looks like in some, some analogies in, in real life to help solidify the understanding of what we've been talking about. Paul's been laying out this argument. He's been laying out the argument that our acceptance by God, our justification before God the Father, comes by faith and not by works of the law. It comes by believing the promise of God, not by doing enough works for God. Paul here, beginning in verse 15, wants to impress us with this truth through through an analogy. And so he says, to give you a human example, brothers, um, and he refers to man-made covenants. We, I think, know what a covenant is, or at least Paul is, is, is making that assumption with his audience. And he argues that no one annuls cancels, voids, or changes a covenant once it's been ratified. Now, covenant probably isn't a word that you throw around in your daily business practice a whole lot. You probably don't wake up in the morning and think about how many covenants you're going to make at work today. Um, But I think if you think about the word covenant, that the Greek word that's used for covenant here is also the word that's used in in making wills and, and agreements such of that. I think if you think about a will, that gives you a good picture of what Paul probably has in mind here. And Paul says that once a, a will, a covenant has been ratified, it does not get annulled or changed. And, you know, if we think about will, we might think, well, wait a second, I can change my will all the time. You know, I have another child or grandchild or great-grandchild, and I just, you know, change my will. There's a couple things going on here. Um, first of all, we know that at least in some Greek contexts, that was not necessarily possible. You could not make a change to certain types of wills that were made. Um, but I think probably the better analogy is to say, well... In American law, when is a will considered ratified, and, 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 and when is it considered set in place? And, and a will is considered ratified when it comes through probate court after death, and that will is finalized. And the point that Paul is making here is once a will is finalized, once a covenant is finalized, the circumstances around that will don't dictate how that will will be carried out. 
you know, a practical example of this, let's say a man makes a will and, and he has a younger son who is less well off and an older son who has much wealth. And in his will, he says 75% of my estate goes to the younger son and 25 goes to the older son. If that man dies, his will is ratified. The children open it and lo and behold, since that will has been made, the older son is now the less well-off one and the younger son now has more money. That change in circumstance doesn't change the will. The will still says the younger son gets 75% of the property and maybe the children will discuss that, but but the, the circumstances don't change the will that has been ratified. So this is Paul's point. This is the, the story, this is the analogy that Paul's making. He says if there are man-made covenants that are made, that are binding and cannot be annulled or changed, if that's true of man-made covenants, how much more will that be true of a covenant that God makes with His people? How much more will a God-driven covenant be unchangeable, unvoidable, than the covenant made by, by men? And Paul says, or see, you remember the covenant. He says God made a binding covenant with Abraham, and that covenant was a covenant of promise based on faith. Now, okay, uh, what, what is the covenant that Paul's referring to? Well, many of you will remember, if you think back in, in the words of Genesis and your Old Testament history, and, okay, what is this covenant that, that God had made um, with, with Abraham? And, and the covenant is, is the one that God makes in, in Genesis chapter 15. It's one of, I think, one of the most powerful images and stories in the Old Testament is God declares to Abraham that he will make him a great nation, his offspring, and all nations will be blessed. But of course, Abraham's standing there saying, okay, great, I'm going to have all these blessed offspring, and I'm going to have nations come from my womb, and kings, and all this stuff, but God, one problem, I still don't have a single child. How do I know, God, that your promises to me are going to be fulfilled? You may remember that God responds by having Abraham take a number of animals and cut the animals in half. And as Abraham is put into a deep sleep, he sees a vision of, of God as a, as a smoking fire pot go between these, these cut animals. As God promises to him, I will do for you what I have promised. And you may know uh, from your history that the, the symbolism of, of this covenant here you know, many covenants have certain rituals or ceremonies that, that solidify the covenant. Uh, I know, you know, back for me as a middle school student, maybe some of you were like this. It was the old spit in the hand, and both of you spit in the hand and shake hands on it, and that solidified the agreement. I'm not sure what the symbolism was uh, of that. But we know what the symbolism here is. When God makes this covenant, when the animals are cut in half, and one person walks down the center of the animals, the, the symbolism, the message is, if I don't keep my promise, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Perhaps not uh, all that uh, interesting in one way until you look closely at what happens in Genesis chapter 15. Because both parties in the covenant do not walk down those split animals. Abraham never walks between the cut animals. Only God walks between the cut animals saying, this will happen to me before this covenant, this promise is broken. God doesn't say, Abraham, I want you to walk down the cut animals, and if you don't maintain 51% righteousness, may this happen to you. 
He doesn't say, Abraham, walk through the animals, and if you and your descendants all obey my laws, then we're in good shape. No. God alone passes through the animals and makes a promise. A promise that is a gift to his people, to Abraham and his descendants. A promise that God says, I will keep this promise even to death, even to death on a cross. You will not annul this promise. This promise will be kept. It is my word. And so here in Genesis 15, we also hear the words that that Paul has talked about a number of times where Abraham believed God's promise and it was credited to him as righteousness. So here's the story that Paul is talking about. He says God promises and God alone walks through the animals to promise what Abraham has been given, that his descendants will be as numerous as as the stars in the sky. This is God's promise that there is going to be a seed. And and Paul here emphasizes that the seed is not referring just to, to many people, but the seed is particularly referring to Christ and those who will come through Christ. And so Paul says, just as Abraham received the promise by faith, so we also receive this promise by faith. And he said, yes, okay, after the promise, 430 years later came the law, But the covenant had already been made by promise. God had already walked through the animals by promise. And God isn't going to say, Oh, by the way, Moses, here's a new law. This kind of changes things on the promise side of things. Now that I'm giving you the law, you've got to keep it. Paul says that's ridiculous. God is not going to give something 400 years later and kind of sweep away the whole promise thing so that now we have to keep keep the law. That's not the purpose of the law. God's covenant promise received by faith is not changed or made conditional by a later insertion of the law in covenant history. So right from the start, Paul says, God is going to fulfill his promise of salvation, a promise that we would be received and accepted as God's people by faith alone. And he makes the comment, he says, Paul says, you know, if works are necessary, if you need to earn your acceptance by God, This is not a promise or an inheritance or a gift. If this is something you need to earn, it's a reward, not a promise and a gift. Well, this is Paul's first argument here in verses 15 through 18. The law does not annul the promise that God made to be received by faith. But as we get to verse 19, I think we can insert ourselves back into the conversation that we've been joining between Paul and his Jewish adversaries in Galatia. Remember, throughout this, these three chapters, we've heard some oppositional arguments, some, some cross-examination from, from Paul's opponents. And I can imagine them sort of re-entering the conversation here at, at verse 19. And I can imagine these Jewish opponents, and I think I've said before, I like to sort of picture this dialogue going on in front of me as the two dispute the role of, of faith and and, and the law, and I can imagine these Jewish opponents perhaps in disbelief as they, as they see Paul emphasize Abraham and Christ and completely skip over the significance or importance of Mount Sinai and the law that God gave to Moses. And so I can see them pressing their, their point on Paul. But Paul, but Paul, don't you realize if you're going to go from Abraham and his promise to, to Christ, and if you're going to say that the law you know, isn't changing anything, what purpose have you left the law? Why did God even give the law? If he made a promise to Abraham and said, Abraham, I am going to keep my promise. It is fulfilled by faith. And that's still where we are with Christ. Why was the law even put there? 
If God was just going to do it, why the law? Why demand obedience? What's, what reason did God have for putting the law in place if it was all going to be handled by promise anyways? And this is, this is the, the Jewish opponents in their argument. Why then the law? Paul says, uh, answering their objection. And Paul has a ready answer. He says the law was added for transgressions. See what Paul is saying here. Paul's saying, yes, of course the law had a purpose. Yes, the law had a purpose. But the purpose of the law was not to save you. The purpose of the law was not to bring you into acceptance in God's sight. The purpose of the law was not to make people holy or to make people into the people of God. That wasn't the purpose of the law. Quite the opposite. Rather than making people holy, the purpose of the law was to show God's people that they weren't holy. The purpose of the law was to highlight how much these people needed the promise of God. I was talking to a friend uh, in the church recently who was told by a contractor who had come into his home that he had a mold problem in his basement. Now, some of you have had problems with mold and you see the black or white spots all over, but my friend saw nothing. He said, I, I see no mold in my basement. I don't know why this guy is telling me I have a mold problem in my basement. A couple days later, he had to go down into the basement into, into kind of a back corner to, to get something, and so he took a flashlight, a high-beam flashlight with him, started shining it in the corner, and when he shone the flashlight on the drywall, he discovered a huge quantity of clear mold crystals growing all over the drywall. Didn't know they were there at first, hadn't been able to see them, but under the light of the flashlight, he suddenly saw that his drywall was covered with mold. This is a great analogy for what Paul is saying here. What's the purpose of the law? You know, the purpose of the law isn't to solve the problem, it's to reveal the problem. What did my friend's flashlight do? It didn't solve the mold problem. In fact, my friend thought he had a whole lot bigger of a problem after he'd shined the flashlight in the basement. But none of us would say, well, man, just put the flashlight away, stop shining the flashlight, and it'll all be good. No, and this is Paul's point. We need the law. God's law was put there just like this flashlight to reveal the sin and the transgressions that are a part of God's people. Now, Paul's Jewish opponents are not ready to give up their argument. So, you know, after Paul answers their first objection, they press on in verse 21 with a second counterargument. Nice try, I can imagine them saying to Paul. Okay, great. You say it's put there for sin, to show us sin, to show us transgression, but now you've created another problem, Paul. See, now you've made the law work against God's promise. God's promise is to make us acceptable in His sight, and the law apparently shows us how bad and unacceptable we are in His sight. Don't you see, Paul, that you're now making the law work against God's promise? You're, you're now making them do two contrary things? I can imagine them saying, you know, look, Paul, the promise of God is to make his people accepted. Under your scheme, the law doesn't do that. It does the opposite. It makes them more unacceptable. This doesn't work out so well. Paul does it. But, but of course, Paul has a ready answer once again. And Paul makes two comments in verses 21 and 22 to answer the Jewish opponent's objection. Paul says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. And first, if you look at verse 21, Paul points out that if the law were able to give life, that would actually lead to a standoff between law and promise. Paul says, no, actually, it's if the law does give life that we have a problem. Because now we have God's promise of life to be received by faith, 
And we have a law that says you get life by working. But you can't receive something as a gift and earn it by working at the same time. Those two don't work together. So Paul says, actually, the problem is if you try to view the law as something you work to earn salvation, and you go back to God's promise and say he's promised us salvation by faith, those two are mutually exclusive. This is a perfect argument by Paul. He says, no, the law must have a different argument than faith, or else they work against each other. Verse 22, Paul gives a, a second argument, though. Paul clarifies this, this first exclamation, uh, explanation, saying that, that actually the law and the promise under his explanation work together, together perfectly. He says in verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ is given to those who believe. See what Paul is saying. He says actually law and promise work together when we view the law as what confines us in our sin, reveals our sin, shows us our sin. And the more we see our sin, the more we need a Savior so that when Christ comes onto the scene, we are now prepared to receive by faith the promise of God. John Stott put it this way. He said, The promise of the law was to lift the lid of man's respecti- off man's respectability and disclose what he is really underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God, helpless to save himself. No man has ever appreciated the gospel of Christ until the law first revealed him to himself. It is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel of life in Christ shines forth. What a great comment by John Stott on Paul's comments here. I think Dr. Riken perfectly summarized these two verses when he wrote, Salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. What a glorious, glorious truth. So you see, what, you see what Paul has done here. He's argued that our acceptance with God, the love of God, and a restored relationship with God do not rest on what we do, but on our faith in what God has done. Well, Paul closes with two more quick analogies here. In verses 23 to 29, Paul says, let me give you two more pictures. Two more pictures to see how this plays out. And he says that the law works first as a prison guard and then also as, as a tutor as a tutor or a guardian for those who are awaiting Christ. I think the vision of a a prison guard is is something that we can sympathize with, something that we can can readily appreciate. The prison guard is the one who guards the door. He's, He's the visible symbol of our captivity. He's the one who keeps us in bondage. And in the same way, says Paul, the law is this visible symbol of our of our bondage and sin. It's the thing that shows us our sin, makes us realize, demonstrates, brings out for us the slaver we have to our sin. The the image of a guardian or a tutor is perhaps not one that we're as familiar with, but if we if we unwrap what what's behind this, the uh, the the Greeks had a a position, a person they called a pedagogue. You might, uh, for those of you who have heard the word pedagogy, a a way to teach, it's coming from the same word, a pedagogue, a tutor, a guardian. And the role of the pedagogue was not to sort of teach math flashcards. It's not what a pedagogue did in uh, in a Greek household. The pedagogue was the one who may take his student to school, but he was primarily the guardian responsible for his boy's life and training um, in, in the first years of his childhood. And so most often the pedagogue, if you look in, in Greek manuscripts, the pedagogue is the person who's, who's pictured with a whip 
whipping the boy. It's, he's the disciplinarian, the tutor, the trainer to discipline the boy to become the person he should be. That's sort of the image that Paul's giving us here. The law is the disciplinarian, the one punishing, showing our sin, so that when faith comes, we will be ready for maturity. And so here's what Paul's saying. The law keeps us guarded in prison until we were set free through faith in Christ. The law was the guardian that disciplined us, showing us our error until Christ came, so that by faith in Christ we might be made full-grown sons, clothing us in the attire of sons and daughters of God. That is what Christ does. I want to just make one comment here, because perhaps some of us are, are thinking as we read this, wait a second, what does this passage mean for how as I, a Christian, should view the law? I mean, look what Paul says. Paul says things like, the law was a guardian until Christ, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So is Paul saying that once we become a Christian, we're not under the law anymore and the the law doesn't apply to us? What's Paul saying about how we as Christians should view the law and what our relationship is to the law? It's an important question that I think a lot of us uh, maybe ask at different points. And there's a certain sense in which Paul is saying, yes, when we become a Christian, we are not under the law of God in the same sense anymore. See, we're not under the law as a force to discipline us any longer, to confine us in a, a straitjacket of what we're supposed to do. See, if the tutor, if the guardian has done its job and pushed us to faith in Christ, the Spirit of God now dwells in us, changing us into the people that we should be. I think Tim Keller puts this so well. Uh, summarizing this passage, he says this. He says, For the Christian, the law has already achieved its purpose of being our guard and our tutor. But let's draw out the analogy, he says. Is it the design of child rearing that when the child grows up, he or she then casts off the rules that his parents have taught him all his life and live in a totally different manner? No. The adult child is no longer coerced into obedience and before, but now has internalized the basic values and lives this way because he or she wants to. That's the picture of the relationship between the Christian and the law of God. It's exactly what the Scripture promises in the Old Testament when it says that in the New Covenant, the law will be written on our hearts, that our hearts of stone will be changed to hearts of flesh, that we'll be born again, that we're renewed in His image, that the Spirit of God is cleansing us, transforming us, renewing our minds. All of these are images of the change that happens inside of us as opposed to the confinement coming from outside of us. So what role does the law play? What role does the law play now? Well, instead of being the sharp stick to coerce us, the law becomes the manual to show us what we desire. You think about it. This is what John Calvin called the third use of the law. R.C. Sproul summarized it this way. He said, The Christian delights in the law of God as God himself delights in it. This is the highest function of the law, to serve as an instrument, a manual, for the people of God to give him honor or glory. For the Christian, the law is not the thing that disciplines it, chides it, coerces it. The law of God is the thing that shows us how we ought to do what we desire to do if our great love, our great passion is for our Savior, Jesus Christ. I think, uh, maybe to use an analogy, the, the work of the Spirit in our hearts when we're united to Christ transforms our desires I was kind of thinking about this the other day as I was trying to coerce my children to eat their dinner. I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be great 
if a doctor could perform a surgery and change my children's taste buds so that carrots and chicken tasted like cupcakes and donuts. Now, if, they, if, if a doctor could perform that surgery, I wouldn't have to force them to eat anything. Me saying, children, eat your chicken and your carrots, that would be exactly what they would want to do. And they would say, yes, my desires have been changed. I'm all over the chicken and the carrots. And I think that's a little bit of a picture of how the Bible talks about the transforming work of the Spirit of God in us. Whereas before the law said, do this or you will die, the Spirit of God says, this is what it looks like to live as a child of God. This is what it looks like to please, to glorify your Savior and your King. And I am transforming your desires to do just that. Before we leave this passage, I want to mention two brief points of application. First, for those of us in Christ, those of us who have been set free from the confinement of the law by the work of Christ Jesus, we should not be less interested in the law of God. We should actually be more interested in the law of God. See, if the Spirit is reworking our desires, if the Spirit is transforming who we are and what we want, so that that we long to do what God wants us to do, then the law of God, the Word of God, is the thing that tells us how we can do what God wants us to do. The Word of God is the tool, the manual, the, the explanation, the guide that says this is how you can live the way your Savior wants you to live. This is the thing, as, as the Bible itself says, this is the all-sufficient Scriptures, that the man of God may be complete, lacking in nothing. It's the law of God, the Word of God, that shows us how to be, who to be, what we long to be. And not only should we long for the law, but if our desire is really to be the sons of God that God has called us to be, then we should also long for opportunities to find areas in our life that don't match up to the law of God so that we could be convicted and repent of areas in sin. We should long to live more and more in line with the Word of God. And it's the law of God that points us to how to do that. I know how I respond. I know in the Bible how Adam and Eve responded. And so I can, I think, safely assume that I know something of how we all respond when we see our sin. Adam set the pattern for us. He sinned, and so he hides. He makes excuses. He minimizes his sin. He rationalizes and gives explanation for why his sin isn't really all that bad. Adam and me and you, we want our sin to go unnoticed, unconvicted, to fly under the radar. We want our sin to be passed over so that presumably we can still be viewed fairly favorably by ourselves by others, and, and hopefully by God. That's the way we as sinners tend to respond to people or things that point out our sin. But see, the renewed heart of a son of God in Christ doesn't care about creating a good impression before people, before ourselves, even before God, because we don't need to create a good impression before God anymore. Creating a good impression before God isn't how we're accepted before God. We're accepted before God because Christ Jesus died in our place because the Son of God shed His blood for us. So why do we care about creating a good impression before God? Our desire isn't to cover over our sin to minimize it. Our desire is to say, where is the sin that I might live more pleasingly to my Father, to, to my Savior who died for me? 
Our greatest prayer should be that of David, who says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Perhaps the best way to summarize this is to say, are we spending time with the law of God? Are we eager for our sin to be revealed? Then this key question. Do we have a greater desire to be holy than to appear holy? We have a greater desire for our sin to be revealed that we might confess, repent, and grow in true grace and holiness. Or do we have a greater desire to cover over our sins so that we're viewed as holy or as good by the people around us? Be with the law of God and be anxious for the conviction of sin that we might grow in our image of our Savior. That's the first application. Second application. I want us to note, as Paul details the relationship between the law and the promise of God, I want us to note the incredible security we have in Christ according to this passage. See, the law of God reveals our sin. We're just told that reading the Word of God, reading the law of God, will show us how imperfect we are. And so the more we see how imperfect we are, the more we'll start to ask ourselves the question, wait a second, am I really accepted before God? Is a person like me, look at who I am, look at the thoughts that go through my head, look at what's in my heart, look at what I have done and am doing, is a person like me really safe and secure in the promises of God? These are the thoughts that we think. These are the thoughts that are natural when we see our sin. Am I really material for a kingdom of holy beings and saints? But hear what Paul has to say to us. The promise of God by faith came 430 years before the law, and the law cannot, does not, and will not make void the promise of God that is received by faith. Now, if we pull in Paul's theology from elsewhere in the New Testament, I think we can underscore this argument even further, because 430 years is nothing compared to the plan of God. If you're in Galatians, you probably only have to flip your Bible a few pages to get to Ephesians chapter 1. And if you look in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, because He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul tells us that we have been chosen in Christ before the world even began. He tells us that before the world was created, before the promise was made, before the law came, before all that happened, God chose you and me to be His people. He chose us in Christ, not as, not as plan B or plan C or plan D or the backup plan because Adam sinned. No, this is not a last-minute decision. Your God did not look down and say, hmm, I think that person might be okay. Why don't I take them? And then a few years later say, whoops, I made a mistake. No, before the foundation of the world, at the very earliest moment, God chose us in Christ. The God who is perfect, who is eternal, who knows all, who plans all, who is sovereign over all, chose you as His Son in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is His plan. That is His purpose. That comes before promise, before law, before the whole history that plays out. See, all of history, promise, law, you, me, confessing, all of this comes based on the plan that God made in Christ before the foundation of the world to redeem us, to redeem us as his people by his blood. 
What greater security could we find in Christ Jesus than to say, before the law came the promise, and before the promise became, became God's plan? This is who we are. This is the security we have in Christ. And I think the only response we have really to, to say, what, what can we possibly say in the face of such a tremendous plan than what Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What great words, what great security to have.